Hey, welcome to Life Church. We pray this blesses you and empowers you for your week ahead. We hope you enjoy this message. Jock was supposed to advertise my books, but he didn't. <laughs> uh, he did ask for a small quantity of some of my books, which I've got at the back, and I'm only saying this because please buy them. I can't fit them in my suitcase. Take them back. Um, I've written a book called Nightlight. You know, we, <clears throat> we're not very good at teaching people how to encounter adversity when it comes. Uh, and sometimes our faith teaching is a little bit skewed, and we give the idea that if you're a Christian, you'll never have any troubles in life. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, if you're a Christian, you'll have more trouble uh, because you're carrying the cross and going into battle. So my book, Nightlife, talks about that. It teaches you how to face trouble when it comes and get through the other side, and there's some incredible testimonies in it. Um, and then I have a book called Mystery Explained. I teach... Uh, internationally on end times, and my phone has been ringing off the hook the last two or three weeks, as you can imagine. Um, and so this, this book, Mystery Explained, goes through the book of Revelation and explains in language that the average person can understand what it means. It actually isn't that hard to understand uh, if you get it right. The key to understanding Revelation is by the way, this isn't coming out of my time. This is all just <laughs> prologue. <laughs> the key to understanding Revelation is to know that there are over 500 allusions to the Old Testament in the 404 verses. So you read Revelation through the Old Testament, not through the latest uh, news reports that are coming from the Middle East. And then the third book there is called No Diving. And I brought that because... It, uh, I'm te basically teaching out of it this morning on the topic of money. Uh, but I, there were <clears throat> 10 topics in it that we seem to not get right sometimes. Uh, and people have all sorts of <clears throat> crazy ideas about money is one of them, faith is another one, healing is another one, <clears throat> and so on. And so I took 10 topics that we get wrong in the Bible, and I give... Uh, my 10 answers to that. It's my book, No Diving. So uh, anyway, better, better not talk any more about that or I'll be accused of money changing in the temple. Um, <laughs> last week, it was, uh, it was um, my great honor to speak in a church uh, that had been pastored by, by one of Canada's great apostolic leaders. And this morning, it's my great honor to speak in a church that was founded by one of England's great apostolic leaders, Bryn Jones. What an honor to speak in uh, the church that he founded. You know, and foundations are so important. This was a church, has been a church over the years that has sent people to the nations of the world. We're working with a church in our capital city of Ottawa that was one of those churches that came out of this church. And so you're honored to be here. And, uh, and of course, as all of you should know, or you ought to know, Bradford is the home of the great apostle of faith, Smith Wigglesworth. And he is uh, prophesied, you know, an outpouring of the Holy Spirit and healing as he was dying in 1948, and his mantle fell on a number of other people. 
as he was dying, one of whom was Catherine Kuhlman, and I was privileged to be in two of her miracle services, one in the city of Chicago, I'll never forget, when you see wheelchairs empty. Oh, Lord Jesus. Well, I should be preaching in healing or something this morning, but anyway, I've got to obey the boss. And uh, I was speaking on money. Let me start with a statement that may surprise or even shock you. Jesus talked a lot about money. 16 out of 38 parables were concerned with how to handle money. Uh, In the Gospels, uh, an amazing one out of 10 verses, that's 288 verses altogether in the Gospels deal directly with the subject of money. Here's a thought. The Bible offers about 500 verses on prayer, uh, a little less than 500 verses on faith, but it offers more than 2,000 verses on money. The fact is that our use of money is about the most reliable external indicator of where our heart is. Now, if you're offended by that, uh, the exits are well lit. (laughs) Sorry. But where would I get an idea like that from? Well, I got it from the man who said this, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. How you handle money is just incredibly important. Now, giving comes from vision. People can give, can give for lots of reasons, make their conscience feel better, make themselves look good, religious legalism, et cetera, et cetera. But real biblical giving comes out of vision. It comes out of an understanding of the kingdom of God. And our motivation for giving is laid out by Jesus in a familiar Bible verse, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The things are the material things that we need to live on. Jesus gives a very clear definition of God's purposes for our lives on earth. We are here for one reason only, to seek the establishment of his kingdom. That's the goal of your life and mine. It's not to be happy. God's not committed to your happiness. Sorry, but uh, I'm not a seeker-sensitive preacher. Uh, God is committed to his kingdom. And if you get in alignment with his kingdom purposes, you will find peace and contentment in life and a few troubles along the way too. Buy my nightlight book for that and it'll explain how to handle that, okay. It's very significant though that when Jesus says this, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you, he seeks it in the context of teaching on money. It's Matthew chapter six. He just finished telling his disciples not to lay up treasures on earth. He's told them you can't serve God and money. He said, stop worrying about how you'll have your financial needs met. Jesus is talking about money. So when he gets to this verse, 33 of Matthew 6, uh, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. He's, the idea is that if we give to God, he will look after the rest. If we give our lives, not just our finance, but we give our lives to God, he will look after the rest. You don't have to, Jesus said, the pagans, they run around looking for having 
how to have their needs met. But if you follow me and put my priorities first, I'll look after your finances. So if that's true, then I'd like to say four things that are important that come out of it. Number one, if we don't have an understanding of God's purposes on earth and how we fit into them, we will never have a motivation for giving. If we, it might, there it is. You know, I'm a man of little faith. I never trust that the people will get it right and it actually goes up there. First, if we don't have an understanding of God's purposes on earth and how we fit into them, we'll never have a motivation for giving. And without giving, you'll never be able to access God's provision. So the key to moving into God's provision for your life and everything you need is seeing his kingdom call on your life. If you don't see that God has a purpose for your life and that he commands you to put all your priorities at his disposal, you'll never understand God's claim on your finances or on any other part of your life. Number two, all of God's purposes on earth are based on the concept of giving. God is a giver. He gave us the whole creation to steward and enjoy. Not to own, but to steward. It belongs to him. Everything we have belongs to him. He is the source of all wealth. Everything we have, we're stewards. And even though we abused his trust in this, he gave us his son to restore us to relationship with him. He gave us a perfect world. We messed it up. But ever since we were kicked out of the garden, God has been in the process of restoration. The first thing he did was invite Cain and Abel to a sacrifice, to a worship service. God was so gracious, and he's been restoring. God is a God of restoration. And so he sent his son to restore us completely to relationship with him. Now, nobody modeled giving more effectively than Jesus. He spent his whole life doing nothing but giving. And now he calls us to follow in his footsteps. A Christian is a person who is always looking to give of whatever they have, Doesn't, not just their money, but their time, their emotional energy, everything else. We're not worrying about who's going to give back to us because we've already found our source of strength in our relationship with the Lord. It's like a good marriage. If you come into a marriage and all you've got is two straws to put into each other's cup, pretty soon you're gonna drain each other dry. But if you stick your straw into the bottomless well of the Holy Spirit, then you will have infinite resource. We are meant to be uh, conduits, channels of life and of blessing. The Holy Spirit is supposed to be flowing through us. And as the Holy Spirit is flowing through us and we're giving away, there's always a renewal of life. I remember Catherine Kuhlman saying that, as a matter of fact. And so it's the same in the financial realm. As we give, our, our human nature tells us don't give, hoard. Keep it for ourselves. But actually, it's the opposite. If we follow Jesus in giving, we'll find that he just gives more and the supply is never ending. So uh, the amazing thing is that the more people you give away to, in whatever way you give, the more the Holy Spirit will come and fill and bless you. And it's through the giving of our time and resource that his kingdom is extended. If, if we don't give, and all of us have something to give. 
I always tell people, you're, I can't be an ambassador of Christ. Your pastor, your leaders, your elders, whatever, cannot be ambassadors of Christ in your place of employment, in your neighborhood, in your school, university, college, whatever. You alone can be and are the ambassador of Christ in that place. You're the one that God has called to give and lay down your life in that place. All of us count and what we, what we do for God. So number one, if we don't have an understanding of God's purposes on earth and how we fit into them, we'll never have a motivation for giving. Number two, all of God's purposes on earth are based on the concept of giving. And num- number three, every time of revival or renewal in the Old Testament was accompanied by either an increase of giving or a restoration of tithing. And you can look Uh, Moses, David, Solomon, Joash, Hezekiah, Josiah, all through these Old Testament times, every time there was a move of God, people started to give. Because Jesus, you know, it's the same reason Jesus taught more about money than he did about other things. Because money is the most reliable external indicator to where your heart is. And when God starts, I'll get it right in the end, when God starts to touch your life and your heart, he will touch your bank account. Absolutely, he will. And how many people would rather have your bank account in the hands of Almighty God than yourself? So Jesus, he, he uh, left everything. He was the, you know, that day that they let the guy through the roof. Uh, I heard a preacher say once, what was Jesus doing when they let, let the guy through the roof? Well, he had a pencil. He got the pencil out of his ear and he was making up a quote for repairing the roof. You know, Jesus was the best carpenter in town. Imagine what he could have charged, you know? But Jesus left that behind. He left his profession. He left his home. He left all his security. He had enormous amounts of money that must have flowed through his ministry. All these tons of people that were following all through the, the country after him, looking after them every day. And yet he accumulated nothing for himself. He left this world with no possessions but his clothes and even those were taken away from him and the humiliation of his death. And the last point I want to make is if our lives are not submitted to God in the area of finance, they're probably not submitted to God in any other area. Uh, I, you know, that's just how it goes. If you're finances are not submitted to God, chances are other areas of your life are not submitted to God either. So if that's an ouch, then God bless you. (laughs) So those are my, this is when I said the last point, you thought, oh, praise God, he's already finished. I can go and have a coffee, but not quite. Uh, Those are my beginning points. Okay, don't worry. This is not, I'm not a long-winded preacher. Okay, my next, I wanted to make these four basic statements at the beginning to posture you. Now, let me expand on this idea of God being a giver. Paul reminds the Corinthians, he's writing to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9, of the attitude of Christ. He says this, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Now think about it, Jesus was literally rich. He was ruling over the cosmos, right? Before he came into this world, he had everything. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. That's an incredible transfer. Elsewhere, he says to the Corinthians, he, he, took our, he became sin for us that we might become righteousness. 
and he became poor for us that we might become rich. Isn't it interesting how Paul makes those two statements? He talks about um, being exchanging our sin for our righteousness and our poverty for uh, wealth. And Paul, Paul isn't afraid to make such a practical material down-to-earth statement. The reason he isn't afraid is that he is assuming that the money that God is going to bless us with is going to be used for God's glory. You know, wherever the gospel goes, it brings prosperity to the nations of the world. My dad taught me that. He was saved. Uh, my dad was raised in the tenements of Glasgow. It was pretty poor. His, my grandfather was blind. My grandmother was crippled. They had absolutely nothing. They were dirt poor. And my dad got saved because the Plymouth Brethren sent with who, who their eschatology I don't agree with, but I thank God Plymouth Brethren used to send their street preachers out to the streets of Glasgow and they preach at the tenement buildings. And every Saturday, people would throw eggs and, and stones and whatnot at them. And my dad was sitting up there in the third or fourth floor listening. And one Saturday, he came down and gave his life to Christ. And, then, and I wouldn't be here otherwise it wasn't for that. But what my dad taught me was that in, in the brethren, the men were all, had all been illiterate when they got saved. And they taught themselves to read so they could read the Bible. And of course, they got there so that now they're educated a little bit. They can read, right? Whereas they couldn't before. Also, <clears throat> the elders are teaching them how to handle their finances. Also, they're not going out and getting drunk every Friday, Saturday night. Uh, they're not gambling their money away. And, guess, and they're starting to work hard and be responsible employees. Guess what? They all get rich. Well, not rich, but they all get a lot richer than they were before. This is not prosperity teaching. I'm not a prosperity preacher. Prosperity teaching is, you know, I can ask God for anything I want. And a lady asked me in a church a few weeks ago, she said, well, if I fast and pray hard enough, will God give me what I want? I said, no, if you fast and pray hard enough, God will change your heart so he gets what he wants. <laughs> so I'm not a prosperity preacher, but I'm telling you that God wants to prosper you. If your heart is right and you're aligned with the purposes of God, God will bless you financially. It doesn't mean that everybody gets rich. It just means that you'll be richer than you ever would have been otherwise. And he wants to bring resource into his kingdom because the kingdom of God does not move ahead without money. How many know it took money to put this building up? So we can have church here this morning. It takes money to send missionaries out, it sends money to send people out church planning. It sends money. It, it takes money to, to, to go out and minister to the poor in this community. It takes money to do that. God wants to generate. God, is, God, is, God is, it doesn't have a problem with generating money, but he has a problem with getting our hearts right so that we can be entrusted with it without it ruining us. That's what I'm trying to talk about. Okay. When God brings people into his kingdom, his desire is that they become like him. That's a, that's a simple point, isn't it? He wants us to become like him. Good managers will handle their master's finances the same way the master would, not by hoarding, but by giving, not by being selfish, but by being generous, not by accumulating, but investing. 
not by enriching ourselves, but in how we can use resource to further the kingdom. And as long as we do this, God will keep on sending us more. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8. There's a lot of alls and everys in that, right? It applies to all of you, to all of us. God wants a people who live in an assurance of supply. Now, the problem about fallen human nature is it operates out of a mentality of need. That's the opposite of an assurance of supply. Fallen human nature defines us as people who never have enough. Now, where did that come from? Well, God clearly told Adam and Eve that they had all they needed, but they didn't believe it. And the serpent came into the picture and succeeded in causing them, in the midst of all this incredible wealth and abundance they had, the serpent came in and said, look at that one thing. Look at that one thing that you don't have. And they reached out and took it and wrecked the whole thing. And at that moment, the poverty spirit entered the human race. It's a, it's a horrible thing, the poverty spirit. What is the poverty spirit? It's the attitude that says this, no matter how much I have, it's never enough. It's never enough. All, all, all that I can see is what I don't have. You know, rich people can have a poverty spirit. I've seen it. Your neighbor gets a better car than you do. All you can see is what you don't have. God, if God is a giver, fallen men and women are takers. That's the opposite of the character of God. No matter how much we have, rarely are we content. You look at opinion polls that are out today, and it doesn't matter whether it's the United Kingdom or Canada or the United States or whatever, no matter how good the economy is in certain areas, all we focus on is, you know, groceries are costing more than they did before. I mean, unemployment may be low, other things may be going along fairly well, considering all the convulsions we've had the last few years, but people have a way of focusing on the one thing that they haven't got. That's because our society lives in a poverty spirit. And we can never learn to steward our finances the way God wants us to, which means God can't trust us with the finances he wants to trust us with unless we've crossed this great divide between the poverty spirit and living in the assurance of God's supply. We've got to get out of the poverty spirit and into the assurance of God's supply. John D. Rockefeller was the richest man in the United States 100 years ago. And someone asked him, Mr. Rockefeller, what was the best million? You, in those days, a million was a lot. These, these days, it'll buy you a bungalow in London. But <laughs> Mr. Rockefeller, what was the best million you ever made? And his answer was the next. That's a poverty spirit. Not enough. It's never enough. I always want more. I don't think I have enough, etc. People who think they are poor regardless of their actual income, will never have a healthy attitude toward money. They'll be tight-fisted and stingy. They'll be moaning and groaning in self-pity about their finances. They'll be fearful all the time 
of the next bad financial thing that's gonna happen. They'll be underestimating what they have and overestimating what everybody else had. They'll feel the world owes them and they'll be ungrateful to God for all he has given them. What they receive is never enough. And they'll never be able to give generously. They'll always be thinking of what I'm having to do without because of what I've given. I'm talking to, about Christians in church now. They'll be begrudging. That's why Paul says, each one must give as he decided in his heart, not reluctantly under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The word in Greek is hilarious. God loves a hilarious giver. Someone that takes their wallet out or whatever, credit card, of course, all electronic now, but however, take your iPhone out and you throw it in the offering. Well, there isn't even an offering plate hardly to throw it into, but you, you know what I mean. God wants a hilarious giver. So now, our whole attitude toward money, I'm not just talking about tithes and offerings, but I'm talking about money in general and how we spend our money, how we use our money, and so on. Our whole attitude toward money needs to be set free from the poverty curse and placed into the hands of Jesus, who has already given everything. All of heaven's treasury has been given to you on the cross of Calvary. And everything you ever need to do in this life, God will provide for. God's will done God's way never lacks God's provision. It doesn't matter. We, we, I started, and my wife and I started one, and my wife and I started another church, second church, and we didn't have a church planning team. We didn't have a donor. We didn't have a, a, a dime. We didn't have a penny. We had nothing behind us. We just stepped out in faith. And six years ago, when we handed over the second church we started, we, we just stepped out in faith again. We didn't have any assured income or virtually none. We just stepped out in faith. But God, when we step out in faith, God is committed to supplying for us, right? And I had an argument with God. That's a stupid thing to do. You'd think after being a Christian for 50 years, I'd stop arguing with God. But I'd argue, you know, well, Lord, couldn't you be a little easier on me? And I felt God said back to me, no, if you're teaching young people to walk in faith, I require you to walk in faith. Where do you think you ever get off the hook from walking in faith, right? Okay, now let's get down to the nitty gritty of tithing because there's so much confusion about this. Now, God is, first of all, God established the tithe for two main reasons. Number one, to enable us to acknowledge that he is the rightful owner of everything we have and that all our wealth comes from him. It's not about supporting ministry. That's the second reason. The first reason is, you know, God owns 100%. You are getting a great deal and only having to give 10%. And there's a strange form of mathematics in the kingdom of God where 100 minus 10 equals 100 or more. 100 minus zero equals less than 100. You may be smart enough to get that after a few minutes. If you tithe, you don't, let me put it this way. I never hear tithers complaining about their finances. The people that say, oh my goodness, I can't afford to tithe. Well, I can't afford not to tithe. But the people that say I can't afford to tithe are the ones having problems. There's a reason for that. God established the tithe so that I would acknowledge he owns everything. Uh, 
Even if you tithe, God still owns the other 90%. He's just being gracious to me and allowing me to steward that. I'm only a steward. I don't own it. Jacob said, of all that you give me, Genesis 28, I will give you a tenth. So if I acknowledge that God owns everything I have, it's no, no longer a big issue to tithe. It should be a small issue. But if I don't in my heart acknowledge that God owns everything I have, if really I'm looking at myself as the owner of it, then it becomes very difficult to give anything at all, which is why in my experience, Christians are often divided into two groups, those who tithe and those who give virtually nothing. There are a few that fall into the middle, but it's often those two things. Folks, the issue is not the percentage. The issue is your heart. Where's your heart? If your heart's right, the percentage sorts itself out. And by the way, so will your bank balance. The second reason we tithe, and it's second in importance, is to enable us to recognize the validity of the service performed by those who are set aside from other work. In, it's a matter in the Old Testament, it was priests and Levites because they had a sacrificial system. Thank God we don't have to, you know, bring bulls and sacrifice. They'd make a mess on the stage. Well, I could have bacon for my breakfast this morning. I couldn't do that under the old covenant. You know, thank God we're, you know, we're in a new covenant. That's wonderful. Uh, and so it means we don't have to support a priesthood to, to do sacrifices. But how many know that the work of the kingdom of God does require some people uh, to be set apart from the work that they, they, they you, you can't go out and work as a, a carpenter or a tradesman or uh, an accountant or a doctor or whatever and be full-time in Christian leadership and church leadership at the same time. It's just a matter of practicality. I, I used to put it this way, I'm paid not to work. It didn't sound good, <laughs> but <laughs> that's the idea. You know, I could have done something else, but I didn't, and I'm being paid in, out of the tithes and offerings that come in uh, in order to do what I'm doing. So those are the two reasons. The most important reason for God establishing the tithe is to acknowledge that he owns everything. The secondary reason is practical to support the work of God's house. Now, let me suggest to you that a biblical revelation of tithing will change your life. Now, the first thing you have to understand is this. The tithe is permanent, not temporary. And I get so ticked off. Well, I shouldn't admit to being ticked off. That would indicate I have an anger problem. And I was driven to the church by a psychotherapist this morning <laughs> who managed to sort me out and psychoanalyze me between Leeds and Bradford. And so if there's anything funny about what I'm saying, it's Waleed's fault, not mine. So there you go. <laughs> Thank you, Doc. Uh, but that one of the most common misconceptions about the tithe is that it originated in the Mosaic law. Uh, and, you know, we do have some funny ideas because we're not like those people in the Plymouth Brethren back in Glasgow in the 1930s who studied the Word of God day and night, then have other books to read, then have TV or, you know, Netflix or whatever. They simply immerse themselves in the scripture. And so ordinary working people became 
extraordinary students and teachers of the Word of God. And so can you. And you can get rid of some of these dumb ideas that go around. One of which is, and I get it all over the place, well, the tithe originated in the law of Moses, therefore it's now abolished along with that law. Now, the problem is that the tithe never originated with Moses. That's the number one problem with that viewpoint. The tithe was instituted when somebody called Melchizedek, Everybody, you, have you noticed biblical names are coming back these days? But I've never met a baby Melchizedek yet. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe there's one in the house. Anyway, Melchizedek received the tithe from Abraham. Genesis chapter 14. That was hundreds of years before Moses. Now, Abraham is identified by the New Testament not as the giver of the law. Moses is the giver of the law. Abraham is what? He's the father of faith, Romans chapter four. Abraham is the father of faith. Moses is the giver of the law. So Abraham meets Melchizedek way back in Genesis 14. And then Malachi at the end of the Old Testament prophesies a restoration of the tithe, which is connected to the coming of the Messiah. Isn't that interesting? People say, oh, it's old covenant so it's no longer relevant. Well, Malachi seems to think the opposite. People had stopped tithing, and he says, when the Messiah will come, they'll start tithing again. Remember how every time of revival in the Old Testament was accompanied by a restoration of tithing. Now, Malachi tells us when the Messiah comes, there'll be a big restoration of tithing. So I hope I'm driving a, a truck through some of your false thinking this morning, if there's anybody that has got this topic messed up. And of course, in Luke 11 and Matthew 23, the tithe is endorsed by the Lord Jesus himself. So I can make the statement confidently, there is no evidence whatsoever in the Bible that the tithe has been abolished for New Testament believers. Quite the opposite. But even if we did take the position that the tithe was no longer applicable, we would have to admit that everything in the new covenant is more than the old covenant. So therefore, you should be giving more than the tithe. Isn't it funny <laughs> that when you run, a, 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 a run across people who are arguing the tithe isn't applicable today, not one of them that I've ever met in my whole life is arguing that we should be giving more. They're all arguing we should be giving less. Well... I don't know. Seems kind of suspicious to me. <laughs> okay. The tithe is permanent, not temporary. Now, let me uh, expand on that or go a bit deeper. The tithe originated with Christ, not Moses. Why do I say that? It's this guy, Melchizedek, to whom Abraham tithes. Now, the New Testament, very helpfully in Hebrews chapter seven, defines Melchizedek this way. King of righteousness, the king of peace, without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life like the son of God. Now what you have to understand is that in the Old Testament, there are certain angelic appearances. But back in the days of Abraham, three angels met 
Abraham on the way to destroy Sodom. Two of them went on their way, but the third Abraham addresses as Yahweh. That's God. Now, God the Father cannot appear in visible form. No man can see God and live, the Bible tells us. And God the Holy Spirit doesn't appear in human form. But God the Son does. God the Son became incarnate and lived on this earth. And so during the Old Testament, there are certain times that we call pre-incarnate manifestations of Christ. That is, Jesus came out of eternity and appeared as a man. And one of those occasions was to Abraham, which is why Abraham addresses him in the word that the Hebrew people use to address God, Yahweh, I am he who is. Yahweh encompasses God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I mean, Abraham didn't have the doctrine of the Trinity quite down pat. He just addressed as he was seeing, right? He knew it was divinity. He knew it was God. So Melchizedek has to be, uh, Melchizedek, in light of the way the New Testament describes him, cannot be just an angel. There were angels, but he has to be Christ, what we call a pre-incarnate manifestation of Christ. That means Christ coming to earth before he came to earth at Bethlehem. That's what I'm trying to say. So it's true, yes, that under the law of Moses, there were all sorts of regulations given for the application of the tithe. That's true. The sacrificial system was all connected with that, and it financed it. But the tithe cannot be considered as abolished under the new covenant in Christ in which we live because it was not instituted under the old covenant of covenant of Moses, the tithe was related from the very beginning to Christ. It was instituted by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, which is why it makes sense for Malachi to say that the new covenant in Christ is going to be involved the restoration of the tithing that the people of Israel in their sinfulness had given up uh, doing. And so here is the last point which uh, is a miracle. I have six minutes and 13 seconds left, and I, I might just finish before. I always go into the red. That's the problem. When the clock goes into the red, you're in trouble. You know, some pastors, they have a, a, a you know, there's a buzzer, and there's a, you know, you drop into the cellar underneath the platform. <laughs> I knew. They, David... Pawson, some of you may know, he was great, one of the great Bible teachers of his age. Uh, he went to preach in a little Methodist chapel, and uh, they put a, a kettle on the old coal stove at the back, and uh, the, the steward or whatever said to him as he was beginning to preach, when the kettle starts to whistle, you're done. <laughs> now it's the same thing, it's just Jock's electronic clock makes the same point, Okay. Here's the last point. The tithe is linked. This is exciting. I hope. Is everybody still alive here? All right, this morning, we're okay. All right. I mean, you know, uh, talking about money isn't the easiest subject. It's easier to talk about faith and miracles and healing and all sorts of other things. But 
somebody has to talk about it. Now, I have one friend in Canada, he invited me to talk about money. And then it was so good, he invited me to bat back to talk. And I said, what do you want me to speak on? He said, adultery. I said, gee whiz. I said, come on. <laughs> so don't you do that to me. <laughs> here's, here's the kicker. This to me is exciting. The tithe is linked with the power of endless life. Now think about it. If Melchizedek is Christ, then from the very beginning, the tithe was meant to be presented to the one who held within him the power of endless life. You've got an encounter between the preexistent Christ and the father of faith, Abraham. And although you present your tithe literally uh, to the leaders, the deacons, the stewards, the trustees of the church, however it's organized, in reality, you are presenting your tithe to Christ. Those that handle the tithe are accountable to Almighty God for how they handle it. That's their, that's their problem. Your problem is not to sit in judgment on, well, I don't think they should have put that carpet down or I don't think they should have done that renovation or I don't think the pastor should have, you know, uh, taken a week off or something like that. It's none of your business. <laughs> Forgive me. I said I'm not seeker sensitive. God will judge and it's a heavy responsibility for those who handle money in the kingdom of God. But your tithe is presented to Jesus and Jesus will bless your finances as a result of that. Now, thankfully, uh, you're in a church where your money is handled properly. Thank God for that. You have confidence. You can have confidence in that. But even if it wasn't, God will still bless you because your tithe is presented to Jesus. If you present your tithe to Jesus, guess what Jesus does? Hebrews says, he's our high priest. He ever liveth to make intercession for us. He is at the right hand of the Father. Thank God, praying. I said, we, we had a whole cavalcade of things happen uh, to us just before we came away. And I texted uh, some uh, godly leaders in a number of cities, uh, and I said, can you please pray and they, as to what we're to do? And they all said, go, go, trust God, you know. Uh, but I'm so glad this morning that the Lord Jesus himself is interceding for me, not just other men and women, which is wonderful and precious, but Jesus himself is interceding. And at the same time, he's taking my tithe and he's presenting it to God the Father. That, that's a thought, isn't it? Your tithe, your tithe is received by the Lord Jesus Christ and in turn, he presents it before the throne of God. And Deuteronomy 26 and 15 says that God responds to that kind of action when we give the tithe to him by giving his blessing to his people. Jesus is our high priest in the order of Melchizedek. He comes before the Father to intercede for us. Friends, it's not hard 
for us to do anything that has life involved in it. It's in the name of your church. It's not hard to do anything that has life involved in it. To tithe should not be hard when we see that it releases the endless life and power of God into our lives and our finances. We're trying to um, plug in a hairdryer in the hotel room this morning. There's so many on and off switches. We're trying to get it right. Uh, How would you like to plug your bank account into the power, into the socket that represents the power of endless life? So that endless life is flowing into your bank account. This is not prosperity teaching. This is provision teaching. It's provision to enable you to go out and do everything and be everything and go everywhere God is calling you to do and to go. Do you want to see God bring material blessing and your finances on your household and your family? Then obey his word. Just obey his word. Handle your finances this way. I've been, I was tithing before I had a clear understanding of the gospel. So I've been tithing for somewhere over 50 years. I have never regretted it. We have never had a big income. My wife trained as a nurse. We had eight children. However that happened. Uh, And uh, one salary, pastor's salary, God provided. Do you know what? When you see God provide financially, that's amazing. It's so incredible. I mean, it's great to have a regular paycheck, but when you extend yourself and then you see God come in and do something, That's just extraordinary. When you hear stories of financial restoration in people's lives, it's incredible. It's very, very faith building. I I, I don't think we should be ashamed of this topic. I don't think we should, should, you know, put it under the rug and, and not address it. I think we should bring it out into the open. Lord Jesus, I ask that you would come into this room right now. Can I, I'm just going to take a a minute, I'm a minute and a half or more into the red now, but can can I ask, if you feel that you've been affected by the poverty spirit in your life, just nobody's looking, every eye closed, but just, I'll look, if that's okay. Just put your hand up. If you feel you've been affected by the poverty spirit in your life and you'd like me to pray for you this morning, just put your hand up. Thank you. Hands all over the room. It's nothing to be ashamed of. Now, Father, those that have their hands up and and anyone else that was too scared to, I ask in the name of Jesus Christ, that the truth would come and set them free this morning. Lord, break the power of the poverty spirit over these brothers and sisters, no matter how young or how old they may be. 
I break the power of that curse in Jesus' mighty name. And I ask, Holy Spirit, that you'd come, even as we've seen you come and bring miracles of healing to people's bodies and people's spirits. Lord, bring miracles of healing to people's finances this morning. And Lord, you can use the debt counselors and the other folk in the foyer outside. But Lord, you can just also do something sovereignly by the power of your Holy Spirit. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord. Now I pray for an increase of faith in the hearts of those who raise their hands right now. Just an increase of faith, no matter how hopeless their situation may seem to be, it is not hopeless to you because you have access to all the resources of heaven. And Lord, I pray that there would be multiple testimonies like we heard this morning from our sister who was up on the platform. Multiple testimonies, so many testimonies, there would not be time for them all to be given. And I pray, Father, for a release of finance in this house that would, that would unleash another wave, Lord, of church planning and apostolic ministry, such as has been the case in years past, Lord. Bring it back. We're not here to accumulate. We're here to give. I pray, Father, for the leadership, for the trustees, for the financial people who oversee the finances of this church. Lord, that your spirit would come upon them, that where they have been burdened, that you'd lift the burden, that it would be a joy to, to, to see the money that is coming in to the house of God and for that money to be able to use, to be used for kingdom purposes. Oh, Father, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. If you're grateful to all that Jesus has done for you. Stand up in the house this morning. Thanks for joining us. We pray you feel encouraged by this word. We would love to hear from you. So why not connect with us via the website at lifechurchhome.com or on our socials at Life Church Home. Have a blessed week and we'll see you soon.